Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And we heard John Wayne saying it, you know, so it must be okay. And when we sung that, it was, you know, oh, this is a big sweary word. So we couldn't get that thing played on AM. Guns N' Roses, they used to come and see us. We played in California, you know, in different towns, in different cities. They kind of followed us around. It's episode 16 of Vintage Rock Pod. I'm Paul Stevenson. Thanks, as always, for hitting play. Now, on this show, I've got two great guests, to be honest with you. The main interview is with a rocker from a band that released their first album 50 years ago. They inspired the likes of Axl Rose, released what many regard as the first rock ballad, and have one of the biggest number ones in Norwegian history. I'm talking about the only original member left in the band, Nazareth, Pete Agnew. Also on the episode, taking part in this week's quiz, is a UK broadcaster of great distinction. You'll hear him across the nation on the TalkSport network and covering on Planet Rock 2. It was my pleasure to speak this week with Ian Danter. And you can find out how he gets on with our quiz about rock covers, rock cover songs, albums, live performances, that sort of stuff. And you can see if you can beat him later in the show. Also, a quick shout out to say, get online quickly to VintageRockPod.com and sign up, completely free by the way, to become a VRP VIP. If you do it quickly, you could have the chance to put your question to a Rock Hall nominee. Yes, the list of the 2021 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame nominations were announced last week, and I'll be interviewing someone from one of those bands to appear on the very next episode. Now, I could be putting your question to that guest as well. Sign up to be a VRP VIP now and see who the guest is. You can then send in a question for me to ask or record yourself asking it and I'll play it to them. Very exciting. Get to VintageRockPod.com now and sign up straight away. Right, with that out of the way, let's hear from our first guest. and It's a fantastic Scottish rocker who had huge hits right from the 70s. So our next guest on the Vintage Rock Pod is a man from a band that's been going from over 50 years. They've had huge hits and they're still loved all over the globe. Welcome to Vintage Rock Pod, Pete Agnew from Nazareth. Hello, Hello. Pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for joining us. Now, as I said, you guys have been on the go for over over 50 years, formed in the 60s, the, the classic lineup of yourself, Dan McCafferty, Manny uh-huh. Charlton, Daryl Sweet. But uh, even earlier than that, you've known Dan for, for many, many years, haven't you, since you were tiny kids? Yeah, yeah, Dan and I, uh, I was just about to say something, it's like 150 years, to tell you the truth. <laughs> you know, we're feeling these days. Um, I have seen, I've known Dan since the very first day we sat next to each other when we were five years old. And we've been best pals ever since. So that's, uh, so that's 69 years that Dan and I have been best of friends. That we still are. Now, as I said, Nazareth officially formed in, in 68, as, as we know it. And then you guys moved down to London by the start of the 70s, didn't you? I mean, the scene in London at that time it was... was it- absolutely brilliant. I mean, the, the, no matter what anybody tells you, let me tell you, the 70s was a gas. <laughs> it was just, the, the, the 60s was a kind of 
the lead up to the 70s. It was them getting warmed up for the 70s. And London in the 70s was incredible. Well, the whole the whole world of rock from the 70s was incredible, you know, all around the globe. Very exciting time indeed. And then the, the first album, Nazareth, was released in 71, followed quickly by Exercises in 72. Now, to back up that, you, you supported the mighty Deep Purple on tour, didn't you? Now, how on earth was that, touring with Deep Purple? We'd actually played with Deep Purple. We were a resident band, the Kinema Ballroom in Dunfermline. And all the guest bands used to come. Everybody, everybody that was anybody played in the Kinema. And what used to happen, there was two stages there. We would play before they came on. Then the guest band would come on and, and then we had to play after they went off. <laughs> so that was exciting because we had to go on before and after <laughs> the Who. Uh, Deep Purple with Cream, that was another band. It was all the other bands, Smoky Tooth. Um, everybody came up there. And Deep Purple was one of the bands that came up to the Kinema. And we, well, we met them then because you, know, you shared dressing, just one dressing room, you know. And uh, we got to know then a little bit. Then when we actually went to London, our managements knew each other. So when they were going to America in 72, it was really just as a favour to our management that they, they added us to the bill because we were completely unknown outside of, well, uh, in America, obviously, we'd never been there. Mm-hmm. But we went on as uh, the opening act for, it was Deep Purple and Buddy Miles, that was the two bands. They a huge tour of America and all the big the, the, the big arenas playing uh, uh, with his, with us really great band and I mean at the time they just had to think Machine Head just come out yeah. so they were just getting really large at the time as well so the crowds were were fantastic and I think it did a lot that tour put us on the map and of course after that we continued to do some work with Deep Purple when we were touring with them and uh, at the end of 72 um we were talking to Roger, and Roger became a producer for the next three albums. And um, obviously, he said that he first came on board to help you with uh, Rasmanaz, didn't he? And how, how did you find working with Roger then in the studio? I mean, did did he kind of show what he'd learned from his time in Purple? Did he did he help you guys? Did he help progress you guys? How did you feel when you were working absolutely, in the studio? Absolutely, Roger was the first real producer. Although I've got to say, the second album uh, was uh, Roy Baker. Roy Thomas Baker. He did the second album because he was an engineer, and he asked to do to, to produce the second album and he was producing us and this little unknown band at the time called Queen Uh, (laughs) and so uh, our album didn't really do very well but the Queen album did pretty good and uh, Rod of course he became a huge name but the real first producer for us the producer was effective in the way that we presented the songs and, and, and really taught us how to use a studio and how to record better was Roger Glover because of his own experience with Deep Purple, and of course he produced, he was producing them as well, and he was producing, at the time, Elf, who at the time had uh, Ronnie Dio, Ronnie James Dio, he was the early Elf, so Roger had done all these, you know, he'd done quite a bit of work, but he was a really good guy in, in the studio, he had a, he was, he had a, I don't know, he had a way of putting, he had a regimen, how to put a track together. And he really taught us how to, like I say, how to construct a, 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 a song, how to how to construct a recording, he should have said, you know. So he, he was great for us, and he did Razmanaz, Loud and Proud and Rampant. So he did the three three albums with us. Yeah. And we're still we're still really good friends. I mean, in fact, I was talking to Roger just last week, because he's, he's in Switzerland now, and he's uh, got the same, you know, all this... COVID nonsense. He's, he's doing the the homes. He's driving him up the wall. He's doing the homeschooling. And he's got two daughters, eleven and nine. So, so Roger's off his off his 
chump. I want to do his teaching. That's good. Absolutely. Now we, we we talk about that first album. Just it, well, the first album with Roger. Sorry, the Rasmanaz. It, it contained a song which has gone on to be an absolute fan's favourite, hasn't it? Broken Down Angel, which, if I'm right, was the last track on the album. Now that's not very common for for what turns out to be the big song to be last on an album. Then what was the deal there then? Do the big finish. You, you, you wanted how you see you don't construct albums now. In fact, when you talk about doing albums now, recording the, the younger bands just mm-hmm. kind of look at you vacantly yeah. because you were talking side one and side two, and you had the opener for side one and the opener for side two, and the none the, the one to close the album. So your your two big tracks was uh, one side one side two. And then the big finisher, you know, and Broken Down Angel seemed to fit the bill. Yeah. And you, you talk about um, newer bands and looking at your wide-eyed when it comes to albums and, and even structuring albums. I mean, in terms of releasing albums back in the, the late 60s, early 70s, it was commonplace to release maybe an album every year, sometimes two a year. And that's what you did during this, this stage, wasn't it? Because you released those three albums with Roger. It was an Roger. album a year. That yeah. was a contract. You have to have an album a year. The bands were all doing that. It was mm-hmm. a, an album every year. I mean, there was no hanging about. And what you did is you recorded your album and then you were on road for the rest of the year and then you wanted to record another album. Uh, how are you going to write stuff? You just had to get you know, do that as you as you run along, you know, and it was it's quite a schedule. You see the things you you know, now I'll tell you what I'm doing. We're going out to the studio uh, at the beginning of April and we'll take April and May. Usually seven weeks we like to record an album and it'll take a couple of weeks for the producer to mix it. So you're looking at two and a half, it's about, and by the time you're on together, it's about three months, you know, the recording uh, process takes. And that's not long. Back in those days, we made Razmanaz in 12 days. Wow. <laughs> and we did the same with uh, exercises. The vocals and exercises, we three days for the whole album in Ian Gillen's studio in Kingsway in mm-hmm. London. And uh, that was every, every, every vocal. And that's how you recorded at that time. You didn't hang around in the studio for months, you know. You get in there, you bind the album down. And it was all, always expected to be all finished, done and dusted, in about three weeks, you know. So, in fact, in actual fact, when at that period, from 73 and 74, I mean, we did three albums. Yeah. We did uh, yeah. Razmanaz, and I mean, six months later or something, we yeah. did Loud and Proud. That's right. Not much longer than that, we did Rampant. And, of course, recording now is... Uh, well, it's not like it was back then, because back then people bought records. Nowadays they don't buy records. You know, you make a record and they go online and download what songs they want the next day. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a different, it's a different, it's a whole different game now. You know. It's absolutely a different game. Just touching back then on, um, well, obviously those those two albums you mentioned there, uh, Rampant and Loud and Proud, they were obviously big hits as well. And then the next album came, Hair of the Dog, and, and, and on that album was a cover, which happened to go absolutely massive, didn't it? Love Hurts. Now, I know you've probably told this story a million times, but what, what was the, the story behind oh, covering that one? <laughs> yeah, I thought you would have done. Um, what, what's the story behind covering Love Hurts then? No, because Love Hurts was just tough. It was a, a favourite song of ours. I mean, the same as This Flight Tonight was. We used to listen to Johnny while we were travelling through the night in the van in Europe yeah. when we were playing all these gigs. You went out to Europe and you were there for three, four months just banging from one gig, one town to the other in Germany, all over Germany and uh, Austria and Switzerland and France and wherever. And you would have your tape, your travel tape. We had loads of things on that. Little Feet, Crazy Horse, uh, Jackson Brown, you know, just a whole bunch of stuff. And we'd get favourite songs and that was one of the ones we used to listen to was Graham Parsons and Emily Lou Harris. 
that it was Love Hurts. And, well, so one of the things, when we were in the studio doing Hair of the Dog, you see, up until then, what happened was, Buzz would record an album, then you would take a single off the album, and then they would take a B-side and put it on the, you know, on, on the B-side of that, that single. So there was, half of your album was going out, two of them had B-sides, you know, with singles, and you were throwing them out, you throwing them out in B-sides, and we thought, well, this is crazy, you know, you're, you're stripping the album. So bands then started to record B-sides. What happened was, a mate of ours who used to write for sounds, he was getting married to a lass up in Edinburgh. So Dan and I were invited to the wedding with our wives, and we went up, we flew up on the Friday night and left Mary and Daryl in the studio in Kent. And uh, we went up on the Friday night, we went to the wedding on the Saturday, we went back to the studio on the Sunday, we flew back. And while we were gone, the guy said, oh, listen, we, we put down a backing track, we put down a guitar and drums for Love Hearts. And we said, oh, that's great. So they said, well, you know, bang the bass in. So I said, okay, I'll just put the bass down now. So I put the bass on the record and it was, sounded okay. And it was a nice sound and backing track. We realised that what they'd done is they'd recorded it. Well, obviously, they, they weren't really singers. They recorded it in the same key, you know, as the record that, that, that we'd been listening to. Oh, yeah. we were, Emily Harris and, and uh, Graham Parsons. Of course, when Dan went to sing, when we went to sing it, the idea was we were going to sing it, him sing it, and me sing the harmony like she did with... And we were going to do it as a harmony thing, like the Everly Brothers did it, that same kind of version. And we went into singing, it just sounded uh, flat, you know, because th- it was too low for Dan, mm. Dan's vocal. It, it yeah. was, it wasn't, his vocal wasn't very expressive. It's not what we wanted. So we thought, oh, well, we'll maybe record it in another key so we can take it up a little bit. And Dan said, no, hang on a minute, I'll just sing it on the octave. I'll see if it's it like, and we thought, whoa, that's going to be real high. So basically, I don't know for anybody, any of people that aren't musical that are listening, but the octave is, instead of low do, you, sing, you start off with high do. You just change it, move all the notes up into the next octave. So he went out and he sung it, and it was absolutely mind-blowing. Couldn't believe what I was hearing. And it was probably one of the best rock vocals ever <laughs> in history, and definitely the first rock ballad. So when he finished it, we thought, that's incredible. And of course, the guy said, <laughs> the guy said to me, are you going to put a harmony on that? You must be kidding. <laughs> you, know, you must be kidding. And the album came out all over the world, and it didn't come out in America. It hadn't been released there yet for another month, I think it was to be. And uh, on the album, the slow track, if you like, was a song called Guilty that was written by Randy Newman. And of course, when we got to uh, Los Angeles... We were with A&M Records, and when Jerry Moss had been listening to the album, and when he heard Love Hurts, it just, it just, it just blew his mind. And he said, okay, take Guilty off the album and put uh, Love Hurts on it. And we said, well, are you sure? Because that was going to be the B-side. Yeah, yeah, I love it, so put it on. Of course, thank God for Jerry Moss, because <laughs> it's the biggest hit we ever had. And it was completely accidental, really, you know. And it was amazing, uh, the amount of times you'll hear... You, you hear that story from quite a few bands. Things that the, 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 the sort of biggest that was a thing that was just a throwaway at the time that they never really thought too much about. Didn't take any length of time to record it. Didn't spend a great deal of time on it. And I mean, Love Hurts was all done. And believe me, Love Hurts was done in the length of time that it takes to play the song. You know, <laughs> the guys played the, the backing track. I put the bass, after a run through, I put the bass down in one take. And Dan basically did the vocal in one take. Wow. So it was uh, one of these things, you know, just one of these miraculous things that happens to you. 
and I'm very thankful for it. I bet you are. I mean, you, you look at the success of the song alone, it was massive in, I don't know, the US, Canada, the, all the Americas, oh, Down Under, and mainland Europe. And, and, and the thing that I, I find amusing is, is Norway, biggest selling song of, of all time over there. It's, oh, was there, was there, was, I think it was, was number one for about a year up there. Yes. It was, it was incredible. Okay. It, was, uh, it was still five for um, a year and a half or something. It was incredible. <laughs> yeah, it broke all records for us. It was... It was really, really great. It was, a, and, and of course, it's t- today is still mm-hmm. it's still one of the big ones. Um, it's still one of the big ones. On, yeah. on, on. You see, the thing is, when, when we did that, what the, the great thing about it was, if we'd have got Love Hearts and it had been a big hit, and that would have been it, and it would have been Goodbye, it was great, lovely big one hit wonder thing. But what happened was because uh, when we did Love Hearts um, in America. They were playing that on the AM stations. Yeah. But of course, the, the track that we had done to be the, the track, the track on the album was Son of a Bitch, or Hair of the Dog, as they call it. <laughs> yeah. But it is Son of a Bitch. It's just at the time, you weren't allowed to call Son <laughs> of a Bitch. You couldn't call the album Son of a Bitch because it just was, was not done. You couldn't do that. Which makes you laugh when you can say, when you see the lyrics these days. Yes, you know, it's like hilarious. Kind of get two words without a swear word, <laughs> but at that time, son of a bitch, to us, to us in Scotland, wasn't even a swear word because you know, as you know yourself, in Britain, we don't use that term. They just we don't use it at all. Uh, it's an Americanism, and we have John Wayne saying it, you know, so it must be okay. And when we sung that, it was you know, oh, this is a big sweary word, <laughs> so we couldn't get that thing played on AM radio. But at the time in the seventies, and this is another great thing of the seventies. All the, all the colleges in America had radio stations, the yes. college stations, and you had all the FM stations throughout the country, and they didn't follow the guidelines of the AM stations, you know? And, of course, they could play it. So when they played Love Hearts, because of Love Hearts, they discovered the album, you know? And, of course, when they heard the album, they thought, wait a minute, these guys these guys are a rock, rock band. <laughs> you know, it's, not, it's not, not just a ballad here. And we had all the songs on there, Changing Times, and Whiskey Drinking Woman, and Beggar's Day, and the other door, which all became huge tracks for us. But of course, when they discovered, the, because of Love Hurts, the album was discovered, and of course, because then, they started playing Hair of the Dog. And that track became, that's the anthem. I mean, if you go to America, it's not, Love Hurts, they love Love Hurts, but it's Hair of the Dog, they're son of a bitch, as they say. That's the one they're all screaming for when you go on stage, you know. So, that was a huge hit because uh, Love Hurts opened the door, if you like, for uh, for the rest of the stuff. I'm yeah. very thankful for that as well. Indeed. It didn't just open the door for you, it opened the door for, for everybody, didn't it? Because you mentioned it there. It was the first real rock ballad, wasn't it? And then from, from that point on, it became a staple of every rock band's repertoire. They needed a rock ballad on every album, didn't they? Especially right through the oh, 80s. I, oh, I mean, I still... I mean, well, there's that one and the other, the other huge one, although people in Britain don't know about it because it was never released here it was Dream On and uh, Dream On as it was as absolutely huge in Europe all over Europe mm-hmm. um, and it's one of these songs that if you know if you're watching German TV in the afternoon when they have their soap operas you know the afternoon yeah, yeah. soap operas <laughs> you're going to hear Dream On at least three times <laughs> it'll be getting played either in the, when the the, the the, the credits are running up or if there's a radio playing in one of the scenes in the thing it'll be Dream On it'll be Dream On you hear that all the time more than Love Hearts uh, and it was it was a monster for us again it was another ballad 
But that was a huge, huge record for us. And at the time, uh, the, the record company here didn't want to release it, and they didn't. And it was crazy because that was a that was a huge that that can that actually is a a, a strong contender. Willowfoots has been sort of the if I'd, if I'd have done the same as it did in Europe throughout the rest of the world, Dream On would have been the biggest hit. Mm-hmm. The other story I've got to ask you about is Axel Rose and, and Guns N' Roses. And he, he asked you guys to play at his wedding, didn't he? And then uh, well, what, what, was, what was going on there? And I think he fancied Dan coming along to sing Love Hurts, but as, la- as Dan said, I think uh, the, the length of Love Hurts would have lasted longer than the marriage. <laughs> so it didn't, it really, it was a no. We couldn't do it because we were touring at the time, you know. But um, I, Axel's a big, he's a big Dan fan, you know. And uh, the band were good, they were great. I remember when they started out, they were young guys. Guns N' Roses, they used to come and see us. We played in California. Uh, there was one time we did six shows in California and they came to every one of them, you know, in okay. different towns, they, uh, different cities. They kind of followed us around and then they were big, big fans. And then, uh, then when they made that album, it just went crazy. In fact, that Manny went to produce that album for a while. He went out there for a couple of weeks to be, at the end of the day, I think they ended up having about seven producers on the album. <laughs> but Manny came back after oh, about two weeks and he said he never ever managed to get all the guys from the band in the studio <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> so it never happened. But they were big fans, yeah. And um, and it was great because that, that was another thing. Um, it's good about having what used to be the young bands, if you like. They're not a young band now, but they were for a while. And, they, you know, there were a, another generation of uh, rock band um, that come after us. And when they did, uh, when they did cover um, Hair of the Dog, it was good. It was good for us as well because what happens is you, their fans, you know, their yes. fans listen to you because you actually um, affected them. You know, you impress the, you impress their heroes, so they're going to check them out, aren't they? You know. Uh, so of course we 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 picked up a lot of, a lot of uh, play because of, because of them covering the song, you know, and that happens, you know. It's always good. And then fast forward into now, you've you mentioned uh, you're going in the studio again in April and May. Um, yeah. What's the, what's the, what's the, well, it's very difficult to look at what's going to happen in 2021, but in terms of getting the, the album out, is it a case of a, a release late summer sort of thing and then a tour to follow, no, hopefully? No, it's longer than that. What happens is you've got, this is what people don't understand. It takes a band maybe seven weeks to record an album, but it takes a record company seven months to get it out after you give it to them. <laughs> they, don't, they don't move just as quite as fast as the bands. Um, no, I'm thinking it probably, uh, if we're lucky, we could get it out in November, which I would like to because hopefully by November we should actually be able to play some shows. Mm-hmm. And right now, all I've been doing is cancelling shows. You know, we were... Yeah. We were booked, well, we were booked all through last year, but like every other band, we had to cancel everything. But we were booked from January right up through May. I've, I've got three big tours that I had to cancel. So we're thinking that we, we might start out in June. We've got a couple of festivals in the Czech Republic and Getcha. Uh, but who knows? I don't know. I think this, really we're... We're probably if there's anything going to happen this year, it's going to be really late on in the year. You know? yeah. I think everybody thinks that. So we're we're working as that being, well, we're we're working on that premise. And I think if we get, we've got a, a tour in Europe, and well, we've got a big tour in Russia in uh, October, and then a big tour in Europe in November and December. 
So I'd like to get the album maybe out for that tour. You know, that would be that would be good if, if we could get out for that. So hopefully we'll do that. I mean, we weren't we weren't actually going to record until the end of the year. But of course, we didn't know then that we weren't going to play for the whole year, you know. So what we did is just decided to to move the recording forward. Uh, so we're, we're doing nothing else. We've everybody been stuck in the house. Yeah. Uh, they were writing songs and stuff. Um, so we thought, well, we'll get it done in, in April and May, and then just see when we can when we can go back to go back to live work. You know? So uh, it's anybody's guess, Paul. You know, it's, it's one of these. Uh, everybody's talking about. I mean, I, I'm talking to other people, uh, yeah. other bands. I was talking. To him. I, I've talked quite regularly with Mick, with Mick Box from uh, United, and I was talking to Mick the other day, and they're the, they're the very same as us. They were they were hoping that the the festivals would maybe stay on at the summer because there's a chance that maybe that happens. You know, that could. Oh, the Europe. There's a lot goes on in Europe yes. in the summer out in Germany, especially uh, Germany and Austria. Uh, in, in the summertime, but um, who's, who knows? We don't know. We don't. We don't know if these things are are going to happen. Even the outdoor stuff. And I think it's got a lot to do with with how uh, how they're going to get vaccinated and things over there. You know, they're talking about getting all oh, that's done here very quick. But I was talking to somebody in Germany yesterday who was told that they'll be getting a vaccine and they'll be getting their injection in June. You know, so <clears throat> it doesn't make it sound too. You know, too keen for no. touring at that time of the year, does it? Not at all, not at all. And you, you mentioned everyone's at home kind of writing stuff and uh, you're passing demos around amongst each other. Well, even, you know, even that's different. It's not as easy as it sounds as well because, you know, I think uh, when we first went into lockdown, everybody threw themselves into the writing thing. All oh, right, OK, because you just finished touring for a year. You know, we'd, we'd just come off uh, two big tours. We did a big tour where... Uh, ourselves, Uriah Heap and Wishbone Ash, we did a big German tour in January in 2020. And then we went out to Russia and we did a whole, the whole of February, right up until we finished in uh, Slovakia on the 7th of March. And of course we come home and that was it. They yeah. closed the borders, you know. And so we'd, we'd, we'd actually been playing. So you were quite fresh getting into the writing and things, what the ideas and everything. But see, when you get stuck at home for a long, long time, at least the way, definitely when I, the way I work. A lot of the, when I'm writing songs and when I get ideas from songs, it's because I'm travelling around. Because you know you're you're active. There's, I don't know. There's just there's just a thing about travelling around and ideas come to you and things. When you're just sitting around after a couple of months, that kind of boredom sets mm-hmm. in. You know, and it's very hard to. I don't. You know, I don't feel as. I find it. I find it hard to 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 keep your level of creativity up. When and I don't, I don't think it's not depression or anything like that. It's just like everybody else. I don't think people are feeling all that creative. Yeah. They're feeling more like prisoners, you know. Yeah, yeah. So it's not a good, uh, it's not, it's not a good atmosphere to be, uh, to be trying to write. Luckily, we've got four guys that write, so uh, it takes the weight off, you know, when you know that the other guys are, they're, they're, they're all working on stuff. But I mean, um, as for, as for passing demos around, we, we. Up to a point, we do. Jimmy's incredible. I, mean, <laughs> to, I think Jimmy sent he sent me thirteen songs that he's done. You know, so I don't think there's going to be a shortage of material for this next album. Put it that way. <laughs> That's a good one. And just quickly for you, then, Pete. Um, any signs of you deciding to, to 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 call it a day to pack it in, or are you a rocker for life then? Ah, oh, well, there's something I can't. Uh, well, listen. If this is what if this is what it's like in retirement, 
I don't think I'll bother. <laughs> you know, I've had a taste. I've had a taste of it for uh, for this last uh, this last year, and uh, uh, you know, it's a way of life. Anybody will tell you that's a a trap. Well, a, a working musician. It's just a way of life, and people in the people in the arts don't really retire. They just die. You know, they just <laughs> it, it just finishes. It, it gets it gets stopped for you. You know, but I've no, no, I've no. I no intentions of actually retiring. I think, uh, I, 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 as I say, it would. Um, I've not had. I, I don't think. I, I don't think I'd look forward to doing what I'm doing now. <laughs> <laughs> and we're all pleased that to hear that, indeed, Pete. Thank you very much for joining us here on the Vintage Rock Party. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Ray Apple, take it easy. It was a pleasure talking to you, isn't it? There you go, the brilliant Pete Agnew from Nazareth there. Quite unequivocal, really, wasn't he, when it comes to retirement and this fact that he's got no chance of retiring. He's not going to quit the music industry. Oh, and I hope you managed to understand most of what he said. I know the Scottish accent can be a bit of a struggle for some people. Now it's that time of the show for the top fives. And before I run you through the top five Nazareth songs, I just want to say hi to the Big Country Twitter fan base. The top five Big Country songs were shared by a fan's account uh, a week back, and I got quite a lot of messages about my selection. Now, what I love about music is the fact that it's so subjective a song that I love you might hate and a song that you love I might hate it's what makes music so great and personal isn't it now the funny thing with the big country fans was that I ended up with 28 different songs sent to me that people said pretty much would appear in most big country fans top fives 28 different songs that just shows how subjective music is and I love the the big country fans engage with it they passionately care about the band which is great and all these songs mean a lot to them which is fantastic as well so with that said here's the top five Nazareth songs chosen not by a committee not by me to appease anybody these are the top five songs chosen by me based on my favorite songs from the band's back catalogue and will hopefully open up the band to people who may not already be overly familiar with them perhaps so here you go here's the top five Nazareth songs according to Vintage Rock Pod. At five is a track from the brilliant Hair of the Dog album from 1975. It's six minutes of chugging hard rock. At five is Changing Times. And number four is another track from the Hair of the Dog album. Again, rocks hard. A guy trying to break free from a woman's traps. Set me free, set me free, please, please, please. At number four is Miss Misery. At three is a song from their 18th studio album, No Jive, released in 1991. It's fast and frenetic and hits you just where the song title says. And number three is Right Between the Eyes. At number two, well, it's a track from the 1973 album of the same name. It's 70s heavy rock in a fiery ball of energy, the bass drum pounding incessantly. At number two is Razamanaz. And the number one song from the Nazareth Boys is the one that still gets everyone up. It's been covered by Guns N' Roses. It's still an anthem today, and it's obviously the title track to the 1975 album. The number one Nazareth song, according to Vintage Rock Pod, is that son of a bitch. Hair of the Dog. And that's leaving off a load of great songs like Whiskey Drinking Woman, This Month's Messiah, You're My Violin, and the bigger commercial tracks as well, This Flight Tonight, Broken Down Angel, and of course, Love Hurts. If you're not overly familiar with Nazareth or their back catalogue, go and check them out. They have some fantastic albums in the 70s, right the way through to the 90s. They're still releasing stuff today. Definitely recommend you go and check them out. As always, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this selection. Go Get in touch on all the socials. Just search for Vintage Rock Pod on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and by going to vintagerockpod.com as well. Now it's time for our second guest on the show, this time taking part in this week's Vintage Rock Pod Quiz. 
And it's quiz time. And because this week we've had Pete Agnew on from Nazareth and they had some huge hits that were cover versions, the quiz this week is going to be about rock covers. Yes, rock cover songs, rock cover albums, rock cover performances, that sort of thing. So when it comes to thinking who could take part in this, I only had one man in mind, a man that you've definitely heard of, even if you're not sure whether you've heard his voice before, you will have done. That's because he's a sports broadcaster. He's a football commentator. He's a TV presenter. He's an impersonator, an impressionist, a voiceover, a comedy writer. He's got his own podcast. He presents shows on Planet Rock. He's a very talented musician who's taken part in many different bands, including cover acts like um, Dressed to Kill from Kiss. And he's released solo albums as well. So it's my pleasure to welcome to Vintage Rock Pod, Mr. Ian Danter. Paul, how are you? Good? I'm very good indeed. Thank you very much. Did I miss anything out there amongst all that? Yeah, it's, a, yeah, it's too long a list, that, isn't it? It's, uh, <laughs> I need to pare that list down a little bit. But um, uh, Chief Tea Maker and Bottle Washer, there you go. You forgot to add that on there. I'm, I'm very, I'm, 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 I make a decent brew. Good stuff. We'll add that to the list indeed. So because of your, your fantastic history with, with not just broadcasting music on Planet Rock and things like that, but performing as well, you're, you're a very, very talented musician yourself. And you've performed in quite a few different cover bands and tribute acts, haven't you? Yeah, I have. Yeah, I mean, Dressed to Kill, the, the Kiss tribute band you mentioned, I did a good, you know, six or seven years with those guys on and off. Uh, but before that, you know, having been in originals bands, let's let's yeah. stress that when I was in my late teens and 20s, um, I've helped out uh, a Bon Jovi tribute called New Jersey for some years that was Birmingham based. Um, there was a very short lived, brilliant foreigner tribute with uh, former members of Shy in it. Um, Aerosmith Toxic Twins, I used to dep for them. Dizzy Lizzy. The Thin Lizzy tribute, I used to <laughs> depth for them on drums and occasionally on guitar, which was really flying by the seat of my pants. Um, White Snake tributes. So, yeah, I've, I've, I've done, You've done your fair more share. than my fair share of, um, of, of, of cover cover shows and things like that. But but Kiss, as you can probably tell, is the um, was the, the, the zenith. That was the one I was always wanted to do. And I was lucky enough to do it. Absolutely. Around Europe with Dress to Kill for a good while. Brilliant fun. And you mentioned original material as well. I mentioned at the top, you've, you've got your own solo albums. I think it's two you've released so far, haven't you? And you enjoy that? Do you play all the instruments yourself, everything? Uh, I do, uh, yeah. Uh, I didn't sing everything on the first solo album, which came out in 2013. Lee Small from uh, Phenomena, and again from Shine, uh, helped out with most mm. of the lead vocals on that. But on my second solo album, which came out in 2015, that's called Second Time Around, I do play and sing the lot. Um and there's a third album in the works at the moment. Wow. So loads to come. Fantastic. Right. Are you ready for the quiz? It's usual quiz rules then, Ian. It's, um, if you don't know an answer, just pass. I have to take your first answer. Uh, there's 15 questions. There's a time limit of three minutes. We'll go back to them as often as we can within that three minutes if you need to. Okay. Are you all set to go? Yeah. Ready to go. Let's have it. Here we go then. Question one. Which group famously covered David Bowie's The Man Who Sold the World during an MTV Unplugged performance? That was Nirvana. Nirvana. Question two. Staying with David Bowie, he had a big hit in the early 80s with China Girl, but it first appeared on which artist's album back in 1978? Ooh. Um, I'll have to have a guess at that. Um, goodness. Uh, artist in 78. Um, Elvis Costello. Was Costello. Question three. What was the name of Metallica's cover album, which included tracks from Diamond Head, Black Sabbath, and Blue Oyster Cult? Uh, 
Uh, was that Garage Days Revisited? Garage Days Revisited. Question four. The Bangles had a hit with Hazy Shade of Winter, which was originally recorded in the 60s by which duo? Oh, flipping heck. I should know this. You can pass if you need um, to. Yeah, I'll pass, just for the time being. Jimi Hendrix famously covered Bob Dylan's All Along the Watchtower, but what Hendrix album did it appear on? <laughs> um, oh, Axis Boulder's Love, that's a guess. What was the name of the opening track on Blondie's Parallel Lines album, which was a cover of a song from the LA punk band The Nerves? That's hanging on the telephone. Question seven. In 1987, Billy Idol had a top ten hit in the UK with a cover of which Tommy James and the Shondells song? Moni Moni. Which group had a hit covering the Commodore's classic soul track, Easy? Uh, Faith No More did that. Faith No More. Question nine. The punk band The Stranglers had a hit in 78 with a cover of which Dionne Warwick song? Um, pass. The legend Johnny Cash won tons of awards, including a Grammy and an MTV Music Award after famously covering which song? Oh, um... Oh, it was on that album we recorded at Sound City. Um, was it the Nine Inch Nails song? Um, um, no, it's gone. It's gone as well. Right, on their 1977 album Love Gun, Kiss included a gender-reversed version of Then He Kissed Me, a hit for which group in the 60s? The Crystals. Joe Cocker's version of With a Little Help From My Friends became a Woodstock anthem. The Beatles recorded it originally, but which of the Fab Four sang lead vocals on it? Uh, Ringo sang that. Uh, which superstar also released another song from the Sgt. Pepper's album, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, which got to number 10 in the UK and number 1 in the US? Oh. And that's time up. Oh, right, okay. Well, the only version of Lucy in the Sky of Diamonds I can remember that wasn't the Beatles was an obscure one by Amy Mann that I've heard, but that was never a big hit and certainly not in the year you were mentioning. Oh. So I wouldn't have got that. Well, we'll run through. We'll run through and see how you got on. Question one. Which f uh, group famously covered David Bowie's Man Who Sold to the World? It was, of course, Nirvana. That's correct. Um, Staying with Bowie, he had a big hit in the 80s with China Girl, but it first appeared in 1978 on an album from Iggy Pop. You said Elvis oh. Costello on that one. Okay. Yeah. Um, the Metallica cover album was Garage Days. Yep, Garage Inc. We'll take that one. Um, the Bangles hit Hazy Shade of Winter, originally recorded in the 60s by Simon and Garfunkel. You passed on that one. Yeah. Uh, Jimi Hendrix covering All Along the Watchtower. You said Axis Bold of Love was the album. It was actually Electric Ladyland. Uh, question six. Blondie's Parallel Lines included a cover of the LA punk band The Nerves. It was Hanging on the Telephone. Billy Idol's top 10 hit in the UK from 1987. The cover was Moni Moni. That's correct as well. Uh, Faith No More did cover the Commodore classic Easy. Walk On By was the name of the Stranglers hit from 1978. The cover of Dionne Warwick. Oh. You didn't get that one. They covered that. There you go. Yeah. Um, Johnny Cash, the song that was on the tip of your tongue. He just couldn't get it out. It was Hurt. Uh, the 1977... Uh, album track that Kiss covered it was The Crystals that is correct I expect to get that one right uh, Ringo Starr did do the uh, the lead vocals on with a little help from my friends for the Beatles and the one that you got to and couldn't think of the superstar that released another version of the Sgt. Pepper's albums Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds got to number 10 in the UK and number 1 in the US was Elton John ah right. so there we go okay so how did I do you got 7 out of 13 there Ian that's not too bad at all 
Some tricky ones in there. That's decidedly average. <laughs> Decide, that's the name of your third album. There you go. I'll let you keep that one. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect, Ian. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show, and um, thanks very much for taking part in the quiz. Cheers, fella. All the best. A big thank you to Ian Danter there. Pleasure to speak to him. Now, there's no Tim this week, but I think we can all agree that the big news in the rock world in the last seven days was the release of the nominations for the 2021 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Voting is now open and an awful lot of chat about the nominees, as there always is. There's a lot of bands that still seem no nearer getting in, which is bizarre. But some of the choices for the selection this time out makes you wonder whether Rock Hall should just be renamed to Music Hall of Fame. It's certainly got to that stage, hasn't it? With a few in there that you wouldn't class as rock and roll in any way, shape or form. The full list of nominees this year is uh, Mary J. Blige. Mm -hmm. Kate Bush, Devo, Foo Fighters, The Go-Go's, Iron Maiden, Shaka Khan, Carol King, Phil Acuti... LL Cool J, New York Dolls, Rage Against the Machine, Todd Rundgren, Tina Turner, Dion Warwick, and Jay-Z. Now, excitingly for me, next week I'll be interviewing someone from one of those bands on the list for the next episode. And a clue, certainly not Jay-Z or LL Cool J or Mary J. Blige. Now, here's the exciting bit for you. I could be putting your question to this musician too. Like I said earlier, get yourself to VintageRockPod.com and sign up to become a VRP, VIP to get involved in this one. And other future guests as well, because I've already interviewed some Big artists from like the Dire Straits and Genesis, Rainbow Scorpions, many, many more as well. So you could be putting your question to big acts like this. Just go to VintageRockPod.com for all the details there. And that's it for this episode then. As always, I really do appreciate your support. Subscribe and follow this podcast on whatever platform you listen to your podcasts on. Leave me a nice five-star rating too and a little review if you can, if that's possible as well, because it all helps with the ranking and visibility. And to be honest, it's free. It'll take you two seconds and I will really appreciate it. Tell your friends, your family, your neighbours, your colleagues, anyone really to get listening and to join in. I've got some big guests on the way for you. A diverse bunch as well, as always. I like to keep it interesting for you and get new stories from the world of rock for you to hear. Until episode 17 then, remember, if you come across anyone who isn't a fan of rock, just tell them, my music is better than yours. Take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.